So Philippians is uh, like a lot of Paul's letters. It, it has a very distinct kind of structure to it. And we may be accustomed to reading um, literature or, or letters or songs and listening to songs or whatever that build up to a climax and the climax is at the end. But that's not always the case, particularly in the Semitic uh, Middle Eastern uh, Jewish literature. And here in Philippians, I would suggest that the whole structure of the letter builds up to a, a has its uh, kind of its climax in in chapter two, uh, from verse five to verse eleven, where we've got this description really of Jesus on the cross, not a, a description of uh, Jesus coming down from heaven or being incarnated. It's all a description of his mental attitude in his life, but above all in his time of dying, and it's introduced really by an appeal to have that same mind. Verse 5 of chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, he talks about how he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a slave, was made in the likeness of men, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And there's seven stages of humiliation. And then there is seven uh, stages or, or phrases used about his exaltation. And this is set up not, not to, as a, a kind of an icon for us to look at and think, wow, that was Jesus there. But Paul's idea is that Jesus is our pattern. And we, as it were, died with Christ. And therefore, the mind of Christ then should be ours now. Now this is a very, very high challenge. So he, he talks about the mind of Christ, and that I suggest in terms of the structure of the letter, that is the climax. There's the introduction building up to it, that is the climax, Christ there, on the cross, the mind that was in him, that is to be in us. And the rest of the letter is appealing to the Philippians to uh, deal with situations in the light of that, and to let his mind there influence all their practical issues. Now, we've, got, we've just read uh, chapters 3 and 4, and chapter 3, verse 1 begins, Finally, my brethren. Well, unless Paul was sort of uh, thinking of bringing his letter to a close, but then he sort of got a bit distracted, uh, I suggest that finally there is better translated therefore. So what we're reading in chapters 3 and 4 is therefore, is built really uh, as an extension in practice of the, if you like, the pure theology that you got there in, in chapter 2, in that, that central section that talks about the mind of the Lord Jesus. But he lost everything. He gave up everything that he could have had, humanly speaking, so that he might forever be eternally exalted. So let's just uh, take a few examples of that. Verse 7 of chapter 3. The things that were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And I think the idea of for Christ is really because of Christ. Because of his example, because his mind is to be my mind. Therefore, whatever all those things were that I could have had, the gain I count as loss. And... Oddly enough, those two Greek words for gain and loss occurred in Acts 27-21 when he's talking about the, uh, the impending shipwreck or the, uh, 
the uh, damage that had happened to the ship, uh, I should say, uh, before the shipwreck, he said, you have gained this harm and loss. And so he learnt, really, from that practical experience. He'd realised that actually the loss that happened to the ship was in the end to the spiritual gain, probably, of others who travelled with him, and certainly for him and maybe Luke, if Luke, Luke was with him. And so then, this is what happens, that we are taught by God through life experience the, the basic truths that we should perceive straight out in, in the cross. Because everything was brought together there. But this is why the death of Jesus has to continually be meditated upon throughout our lives. The intensity of what happened there was, was amazing. And of course he also has in mind, I think, the man in Matthew 13, 45 and 46, who gives up everything, who loses everything to buy the pearl. And there's an element of unreality in all the Lord's parables, and of course that is uh, a classic example. I mean, does a wealthy person literally give up everything just to buy one precious stone? And also the parables of Jesus are also left with, I think, unanswered questions which we're supposed to uh, infer or, or imply I suppose from the story and here in that story the question is so what did the guy do with his pearl he like sat and looked at it all day when he'd given up everything that he'd got to buy this one pearl well if you're not going to sell it again what do you do sit and look at it and that's presumably what, what he did that's I think the conclusion we're supposed to draw and so uh, Paul is saying that really he's given up everything, both mentally, psychologically, etc., and to some extent physically, materially, so that he might have this, this relationship with Christ. And he says that he counts all these things loss. Verse 7, I counted loss for Christ. 8, I count all things but loss and this is the same word in chapter 2, verse 6, where we're told that Jesus did not consider, he did not count, he didn't even think about trying to be equal with God. The AV says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He didn't even consider it. He, he, he counted it um, as loss to be equal with God. So then he saw Jesus there in his mind's eye and he thought about the mind of Jesus and this is what motivated him to turn down a successful career in Judaism all the glory of being accepted by men um, wealth uh, etc standing in society he lost all that why? because he perceived that Jesus also had huge possibilities that he could have realised and yet he, he didn't, because he wanted, willfully wanted, to be humbled, to be a servant, so that he might be exalted in God's way and in God's, God's good time. And he says in verse 8 that he counts all those things as, as, as loss. In fact, he uses a pretty crude kind of term in verse 8 of chapter 3. He, he says, I count them as dung that I may win Christ. They're nothing, they're loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. 
So even if it works out in our lives that we die in rejection by maybe our families, by, by our society that we, we have known uh, in poverty, maybe with limited mobility, collapsed health, okay, let's lose all those things and they are nothing compared to what he calls the knowledge of Jesus. Now he's not talking about intellectual knowledge, that I, yeah, I know that Jesus is uh, Son of God and not God himself, uh, etc. He's talking about a relationship with Jesus. To know him in the sense of a, a relationship. And if we know him, then we also have the sure hope of sharing in his resurrection glory. And yet people spend their lives and their mental energy very carefully trying to avoid losing in order to gain now. And this is why they spend their lives and their evenings and their weekends and their mental effort and their worry and their concern doing. Trying to avoid losing and trying to gain now. And th this is why <laughs> to be spiritually minded is so difficult because it's, it's radical that I'm prepared to throw all that away so that I might know Christ. Now, you know, as I say, this is not a glorification of a sort of intellectual knowledge. To know him, this is the question. Do you know him? And when he says that he suffered the loss of all things uh, so that he, he might uh, win Christ and have the knowledge of Christ, that doesn't necessarily mean, I think, everything materially, because don't forget, he dwelt in his own hired house in, in Rome, and even when he was hanging around in, in, uh, in, Judah, in Judea, being uh, sort of held there in prison for, for a couple of years, I mean, they were expecting a bribe from him. So he, he had something behind him one way or another. But it was obviously a mental attitude. Now, it may be that God takes away all our material things, and we should certainly be willing to give them up and should not be seeking to, uh, as it were, gain now. Um, but my point is that this is a mental attitude. Now, it's a very similar idea. In fact, it's the same uh, Greek word when we read that he counted um, the things of this life as, as loss. Um, a similar idea about Moses in Hebrews 11.26 where we read of how Moses esteemed or counted the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt now bearing in mind that Moses had a chance to be the next Pharaoh uh, that he really could have been the greatest person on earth he really did give up a lot and he, he did it uh, Hebrews 11.26 says, because he counted or esteemed, he counted the reproach of Christ far more uh, as the true riches than the treasures in Egypt. He valued the rejection of Christ. As that's, uh, the reproach of Christ is the, the reviling of Christ. It's the same uh, word used about his, his being reviled. Um, his, his rejection. That was what Paul said was the greatest riches now you know we're up here against something absolutely radical very very radical because to be accepted in the eyes of others is so important to so many people it's important to all of us uh, sort of naturally speaking 
but to actually uh, count and consider that if I lose my standing, if I um, have another insight into sharing in the reproach of Christ, this is a wonderful wealth that I've got. I mean, this this is a a very, very high standard, and yet it's motivated, as as I say, by what Paul has said there in in chapter 2 of Philippians, that this is what Jesus did. He gave up all the heights of what he could have got for himself, or that he may have been tempted to think he could get for himself, in order to willfully be humbled. Then in chapter 3, verse 9, he says his desire is to be found in Christ. And it's the same word in chapter 2, verse 8, that Christ was found uh, in, the, uh, in fashion as a man. Now, I'm not quite sure, to be honest, what that means in chapter 2, verse 8, but for, we can leave that on one side. The point is that Christ was found on the cross, uh, and he humbled himself yet further, and so Paul says, yep, I also want to be found. And it all comes very clearly together in verse 10 where he says, so that I may may know him uh, and uh, know his resurrection because I have been made conformable unto his death. Conformable. That I might share his form. Con, together, form. To, to, To be together with the same form as he had. Morphe in, in Greek. Now, of course, this is chapter 2, verse 7, all over again, that Jesus took upon him the form of a servant, not the very nature, as the NIV says, that is not what the word means at all. He took upon himself the, the morphe, the appearance of a, of a slave. And so, Paul is saying, therefore I will be made, this is my hope, to have his form. In my, in my sufferings. Now, again, this is totally, totally radical. My ambition is to be a slave, to have the form of a servant, because I, <clears throat> I want to have the mind which was in Christ. So then we are, he says, the RV says in chapter 3, verse 10, we are becoming conformed. We are coming towards his morphe, his form and appearance. So then slowly our lives are being worked out towards that end. The final position that we reach by the end of our life in Christ in in the flesh, in, in in this life, is that we in some sense would have been conformed to the mind that Jesus had at his death. And then, Philippians 3.21, our body will be conformed to his. It's the same word, although the translation in most English Bibles is different, that he should change our vile body, the body of our humiliation, so that it may be fashioned like, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. So then by the end of our lives, we are intended to have been conformed, to be to have taken upon ourselves the form of a servant, so that, if that's our mental position, when the Lord Jesus comes, 
and there's the resurrection from the dead, we will be conformed to his glorious body. So then, you shouldn't be surprised if God is trying to humble you. And yet we, we wriggle and we fight against it. We, we try to make out different ways. So that, well, okay, I'll go God's way, but maybe I don't have to suffer this or that or whatever. This is why some people suffer terribly in their time of dying. Um, some people die terrible deaths, but very uh, humiliating deaths. And why? In our lives, I can see why. So that we might be humble, so that we might take upon ourselves the form of a servant. Now, it's not just uh, in, 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 the, in the sense of being physically humbled. Um, God is doing this all through our lives. Sometimes people can say, oh, you know, I felt so stupid. I looked such an idiot because, I don't know, something or other happened. I didn't do my flies up or because, I, I don't know, I was standing there saying this or doing that or I forgot my glasses or or whatever, um, it, it doesn't matter. I'm sure we've all felt that, and we've probably all said it to ourselves or to other people, oh, I, looked, I must have looked such an idiot. You know, yeah, that makes sense, because God is conforming you. That's his, that's his purpose. And he can do it in other ways, not just in you know, looking stupid sometimes in, in the eyes of others, but he can do it in other ways, it may be in your domestic situation, your family life, you think, look here, I'm like a servant of everybody around here. Maybe you're the youngest child in the family, and you're the runaround, and that's gone on into your older life. Maybe you're a mother or a father who feels, I'm just a runaround for my partner and for the kids. It can be from a, a sense that, you know, I, I'm running an ecclesia, a church, and uh, I'm, I'm doing all this for everybody, but you know, no one, seem, no one else seems to do anything. It's me running around, organising this, doing that. Or somebody may feel, yeah, yeah, it's always me that has to clean up the hall, that has to this, do that, or the other. And yes, life is unfair, and yeah, it gets pretty cruel at times, but you see what I'm saying? Don't be surprised if those sort of thoughts come to you, because you're right. But the hand of God is in that, because we are being conformed to the mind of Jesus. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 16, Let us mind the same thing. Again, this is an extension of chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. Now, if each of us who are in Christ are individually focused upon him, and if the, the paramount aim of each of us in any body of believers, uh, if each of us is devoted to replicating his mind in me, then we will have unity. Because we will each be minding the same thing. And what is the same thing? The same thing is Jesus. And the mind that was in him there on the cross being my mind. Now, if that is paramount in our thinking, Philippians 2.5 says, it is to be, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus there on the cross. 
then this is the basis for unity. This is how we will mind the same thing, think the same way. This is what the Bible would call the unity of the spirit. You know, the spirit, it's got a wide range of meaning, but it can mean the mind. Um, a spiritual, a mental unity is because we are focused, as I say, on replicating the mind of Christ in us. And this is why, from what I've seen, attempts to bring about unity amongst believers. If they're based on saying, no, we've all got to share exactly the same statement of faith, and if you share the same statement of faith, then you've got unity. You know, in every little point, um, we've, we've got to have absolute uniformity, and there are agreements. We all sign up to this and agree to kick anyone out who doesn't, uh, who's got any doubts about this, about the other. You will not get unity. That's not unity. It's a spiritual mind that is individually focused on Jesus, that says the most important thing in my life, my, my greatest aim, is to replicate the mind of Jesus that he had in his death and his self-sacrifice in me. And you think about him, not just with the broken of bread, but in your life. You think and think and think about him. Think, I wonder how he thought. I wonder what he would have thought in this situation, or that situation. That is the basis of, of unity. Now, under chapter 3, verse 21, who shall change, the AV says, our vile body. Now, I'm sorry to keep correcting the translation, but that is really not, not right. Um, our bodies are made in the image of God, and, and you don't look at yourself and think, I'm vile, you know, by you know, my body sort of thing. Um, the, the correct uh, translation, I'm pretty sure, is who shall change the body of our humiliation. But it might be made like, uh, the AV says, his glorious body. But again, the, the Greek is really the body of his glory. So you've got, again, the two ideas, humiliation and glory. The body of our humiliation will be changed into the body of his glory. So there's an antithesis there between humiliation and glory, and that is continuing the theme that you got in, back in chapter 2, as I, I keep saying, that Jesus humbled himself, uh, particularly in the nakedness of his, of his body physically there on the cross, so that he might be highly exalted, so that he might be given the body of, of his glory. And so we should not be surprised that God is humbling us. And when we read there about the body of our humiliation, he is talking about a physical body, uh, because he talks about how that physical body at the resurrection will be resurrected and changed into the body of his glory. Um, it seems to me that the weakness of our physical body, let alone our moral weaknesses, are in a sense used by God as a means for us to fellowship the crucifixion humiliation of Jesus so that we might share his glory. Now that means that all our sicknesses and finally our, our death itself, all our human limitations that, that are just arise from having limited intelligence, limited physical strength, uh, limited uh, just ability to use what strength we have the, the, the body of our humiliation 
our body, there's nothing wrong with our body. Oh, I'm not talking about you know, alienation by nature or anything like that. But the weakness of our body is part of the humiliation process. So I'm not saying you, know, you look at your body and, and hate it. Not at all. It's made in the image of God. But it is the body of our humiliation. Now, I know all human beings have the same you know, weak bodies. And they get the same illnesses and die the same sort of deaths as, as we do as believers. But there's a difference. There's a huge meaning attached to the health events and the body events uh, in our lives as our bodies decompose and die. And that this is, of course, the, uh, the great thing, to, to see meaning attached to event. And that is, of course, different for total unbelievers, where I don't think meaning is attached to event in the same way as it is in, in our lives. So then, as you get older, or as you struggle with your health issues, whatever they may be, um, not so serious when you're younger, you get more and more serious as you get older, your hearing starts to go, your eyesight starts to go, your memory starts to go, so you know, lose it all, um, bit by bit. Uh, and, and losing those things is it is humiliating in a sense because you realize I am not as I once was as I was in my prime I am not and this is all part of God humbling us the body of our humiliation so that we might share in his glory at the resurrection because in that day all weakness in all of creation is going to be subdued. As Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, several times. And so he, he goes on in chapter 4, verse 2, to beseech two sisters who um, had fallen out or whatever, uh, that they should be of the same mind in the Lord. Now he doesn't just say that they should be of the same mind. He doesn't say, hey, you should just think the same way. I mean, no two people think the same way. Uh, but they should be of the same mind in the Lord. And this plugs into what we've been saying in chapter 2, verse 5. It's this great section, which is at the centre of the letter. He says that let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we've, uh, we've commented earlier uh, there in, in chapter 3, verse 16, that we should mind the same thing. And I suggested that that same thing is the, the resolution that we should each make. That the most important uh, job that I have in my life, the most important aim, the most important achievement, is to replicate the mind that Christ had in his time of dying in me. Now, here it gets all practical. There's two sisters who were not getting on with each other. They were to be of the same mind in Jesus, in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus. And so then, it seems to me that all personal disagreement, and we are all involved in these kind of things, unfortunately, um, is because of a lack of focus upon him, and a lack of focus on being spiritually minded in the sense of having the mind of the spirit the Lord the spirit the Lord Jesus um, in replicating his mind his crucifixion attitude the mind that, that he had as he died uh, to replicate that in us 
Now, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Now, again, time is going, but again you've got another connection back to the whole theme that you got there in Philippians 2, uh, 5 to 11, about Jesus being abased so that he might be exalted. And Paul is saying that I, I know all about this. Because, he says, God has instructed me about being full and being hungry, suffering need and having great wealth, verse verse 12. So then, God brings abasement into our lives so that we might know the mind of Christ, but he also sometimes brings exaltation into your life, a lifting up sudden promotion at work, uh, doing really well in an exam, uh, being blessed with with a a great partner, um, boyfriend, girlfriend that turns into a great life partner, great kids, Um, exaltation of spirit because you achieved something or because something went well or because you found something, you know, little things like that or big things like that in our lives. God brings those things into our lives as well so that we might know the mind of Christ, so that we might see that as he was abased and he abounded so actually different times in our lives and different ways in our lives, we also go through that same abasement and abounding glory. This is why sometimes life seems such a roller coaster. We're so down one minute and then we're so up the other. And we think, like, you know, am I okay? Am I going crazy? Am I, uh, you know, am I on a big yo-yo of, uh, you know, what used to be called uh, manic depression, what is now called bipolar? And uh, it's interesting how many believers apparently suffer from this bipolar problem. And uh, certainly, even if we're not diagnosed... I think we all reckon that we, we've got some element of this in us, a bipolar, I wouldn't call it disorder, but a bipolar condition. And it's not surprising. It's not surprising because Paul says here that he is taught, he is instructed, he says, by God in life experience to be both abased and abounding. And as I say, this is going back to Philippians 2, 5 to 11, that Jesus was abased and then he abounded. And God is doing that in our lives so that we might perceive this. So that we might see that, yeah, okay, that downer that I had and then the up that I had, this is what happened to Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his exaltation. So that we might get the lesson. So that we might see that huge connection which there is between him there both on the cross and now in heaven, and me here tonight.